My name's Mike Tyndall, I'm the minister here, and um, we are now at the end of a short series, a four-week series, where we've been thinking about identity. Who, are, who am I? I don't know if you've ever thought about that, thinking about identity in light of the story of the Bible. Now, the Bible's a very big book, you might have noticed, and so we got in a helicopter and went up to 20,000 feet and looked at the whole mountain range from the sort of bird's eye view, uh, or to put it another way, we've x-rayed the skeleton of the Bible to see what the skeleton is underneath the, the features. What is the underlying structure of this great book? What is the blueprint? And we've been thinking about four main movements in the Bible in this series. These are the four movements, creation, decreation, recreation, and new creation. And these four movements are like the four movements of a symphony. The first one is creation, and the music is grand and bright and majestic, and God creates the world and, and humanity in his image, and he makes them, uh, gives them purpose, and he's with them, and he gives them his word. The second movement, though, changes this decreation, and dark, tragic, and discordant notes come into the music. And then last week we thought about recreation, how God sets about restoring and rescuing and redeeming the world that he's made, and there's a kind of recap recapitulation of the first man, Adam. First of all, we have Noah, who in many ways is a second Adam. Then we have Abraham and Israel, who are also a second Adam. And then we have the last Adam, whose name is King Jesus. This last Adam fulfills all that humans should have, been, should have done in the first place. He keeps God's word. He lives by it, even when he's tempted. He seeks God. He consciously lives in God's presence. And he rules the world as a king. And all those things are part of our DNA as human beings. And now he is filling the world with his image bearers. People from every tribe and tongue and nation and ethnic group who turn from living for self to living for Christ and are transformed gradually into his image. And that is just the briefest of recaps where we've got to so far in this series, which is called Our Story in His Story thinking about our identity in the Bible story. Now, today is the fourth and final instalment, and in the words of the late, great Jim Morrison of The Doors, this is the end, beautiful friends. It turns out to be the end of the Bible too, the last two pages. So how does it all pan out? Well, to be honest with you, Revelation 21 seems rather odd. And if we're honest, it all seems a bit drug-induced. <laughs> A good friend of mine used to be a regular acid user, and he had some experiences just like this. Just think about this. A city coming down from heaven dressed as a bride. Now, can you imagine a city coming from the sky wearing a dress? Not only is this city like a bride, but it's absolutely massive as well. And that's not something you should say to a bride. <laughs> It is gigantic. We read here that, roughly speaking, the New Jerusalem is 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles high. That is a cube shape, cuboid. And that means that the footprint of the city that comes down from the sky would be bigger than India. It would be so tall that the top of it would extend beyond the Earth's atmosphere. So you really wouldn't want the top floor flat. It's short of air in here. <gasps> and it comes down. Just imagine it. The end of time. 
Behold, a golden city descends from the sky, and as it lands, <laughs> squashes India. A billion voices cry out and are silenced. Now, what do you make of this? Is it as crazy as it sounds? You know, one person on the Yahoo Answers website said, the new Jerusalem is big enough for all you religious wackos to live in, so the rational world can be left in peace. <laughs> well, no. You're not supposed to take it literally. The writer, John, wasn't on a bad trip. He was a brilliant artist, and he was working in a style of literature that was very well known in his time, in the first century. This type of writing has weird and wonderful things that happen, but you have to look beneath the surface to get at the meaning. It's called apocalyptic. Another Dawes reference, apocalypse now. And the word used, apocalypse, actually means uncover, reveal. So this kind of writing actually is uncovering and revealing reality. What's really going on behind the scenes? The true nature of things. Now, to give one example, earlier in the book, John depicts a city that is fabulously wealthy and impressive. It's opulent. It's powerful. Uh, money and resources from around the world flow into it. And it resembles very much the city of Rome, which was the global city of his day. But he depicts it as a squalid, shabby prostitute, the whore of Babylon. And he's saying... Look beneath the surface of what you see, and this is the unveiling. This is what Rome really is. So it's symbolic. And nobody took it literally in the first century, because they understood how this literature works. Just like you don't take Star Trek literally. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> I don't upset anyone, but it's not a documentary. And in one sense, there's no point learning Klingon. <laughs> So, given this picture language in a very old book, what is John getting at with his picture of a huge new city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven? If this is how the whole Bible is finished, how can we understand it? What does it mean? Now, in verse 1 of Revelation 21, he sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first, sorry, first heaven and the first earth <laughs> had passed away. A new heaven and a new earth means a new creation. A new creation, and that's where the Bible story ends. And three things come across very powerfully in this teaching about this new creation. Three things, which I'm saying are all Asians. Escalation, renovation, and consummation. Escalation, renovation, and consummation. These are the things, things that come out. Escalation. Now, sometimes people talk about the Bible story as a journey from a garden of Eden to a garden. Now, it's actually a mistake. There is a lot of garden of Eden imagery in this chapter, but it is a city. That means there has been development. To build a global city, you need culture creation on a massive scale. If you go to a world city like Rome, or London, New York City, you sense the massive development that has gone into it. All the history, and the architecture, and the art, and the design, and the building. So the Bible is not a back-to-nature story. There's a forward-facing, future development escalation. And we see this coming through in quite a lot of ways in this chapter. Remember how the book of Genesis, the Bible, begins with a couple. Would you, Adam and Eve, it? put in the garden, 
to work and keep it. <coughs> Revelation climaxes with a people. Not just a couple. In chapter 7, they are described as 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Now, some cults have had a lot of fun with the number 144,000. But John is more interested in symbolism than maths. The number 144,000 is derived from 12 times 12 times 1,000. Even I can do that some. Why 12? Well, 12 is the number of the people of God. In the Old Testament, there were the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Covenant, there are the 12 apostles. The people of God are represented by this number 12. So 12 times 12 is both the Old Testament people of God and the New Covenant people of God. And why a thousand times? Because in John's numbers, a thousand means very big. It's a big number. And this is backed up because in chapter 7, verse 9, he hears 144,000. And when he looks, he sees a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. Now, if no one could count them, how did he know there were 144,000? What we're talking about is an incalculably large number of people. Now, based on the progress of the Gospel, in the last 2,000 years, we can confidently say that there will be millions of people, at least, probably billions What if the current world order goes on for another 20,000 years? How many people will be around the throne? See, it's an escalation to a people. Secondly, Genesis uh, begins with a, a, a sanctuary. It's a garden sanctuary. Now, we thought about this a couple of weeks ago. In the ancient world, sanctuaries had a typical kind of structure. It was, they call it tripartite, three parts to this structure. There's an outer courtyard and then an inner room, and then a small, special, sort of sacred, really inner room. And that small inner room is very special and decorated. And these sanctuaries had an entrance. Always the entrance comes from the east. And they were perceived as being the place of life, the place where you went to meet God. And God is the source of life. Now, in the Garden of Eden, there's an entrance from the east. There's reference to trees, which they had in sanctuaries. There's gold, water, precious stones. And these sorts of things all appear later on in the temple, in the tabernacle of Israel. In the wilderness, God gives Moses instructions to build a special tent, the tabernacle. And he echoes those features. That's where God is going to dwell with his people. And then later, when they get to the land, King David wants to build a permanent structure. He says, come on, you know, we can upgrade from the tent. And God says, it's not for you to build it for me. You're a a soldier. Your hands are stained with blood. But uh, he gives instructions to David to build a temple. So his son can build the temple and David gets the materials ready and the blueprints. And Solomon, King Solomon, builds the temple, which is known as Solomon's Temple. And guess what? It has all those features, the entrance from the east. Inside, there's this three-part structure. And then in the inner special place, that, that middle place, is cubic. It's an even measurement, length, width, and height. And the inside of it is covered in gold. Finally hammered, the finest craftsmen and the best gold they had, covering the walls and the ceiling. So standing in there would be like standing in a shining gold cube. The most glorious thing on earth. Only we wouldn't have been standing in there, because only one person was allowed in there once a year, the high priest. And he had to have some ropes on him in case he died in there and had to be pulled out because no one else was allowed in. So you don't just walk into the presence of God. If you're a sinful human, you'll be consumed. 
And then at the exile, the temple was destroyed, and the precious things were stolen, and it was a national tragedy. But the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of a future temple, but it's even bigger, again, but with the same features. And then when the Jews returned back from exile to their homeland, they rebuilt the temple, and later under Herod the Great, it was massively expanded and enhanced, and it was known as Herod's Temple, or the Second Temple, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was like a tourist attraction on the scale of the Vatican. It was known as Herod's Temple, but that too was destroyed, this time by the Romans. Never to be rebuilt until Revelation 21. But, hang on a minute, some of you are saying, Revelation 21, 22 says, there is no temple. I saw no temple in the city. You're right. That's because the inner sanctuary, that golden cube-shaped space, has now escalated. What is it now? It's the whole city. The whole vast city, which symbolically fills the world, is the presence of God reaching out. Filling the world, as he always said he would. Now, there's escalation. Not just a couple, a people. Not just a little sanctuary, but the glory of God filling the world. And we've only got time for one more example of escalation, because we've got to hurry on. And it's the tree of life. Now, back in Genesis, God planted a garden in Eden. And there were lots of trees in there, and the humans were free to eat from all the trees except one. Two trees are singled out for special mention. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're allowed to eat from the tree of life and stay alive. But they're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why not? Because you get wise by not eating the tree. You grow wise as a human by listening to God's word and not eating the tree. And then you will grow and mature the right way. But they take the shortcut and it all goes Pete tongue. But they were free to eat from the tree of life until that moment. The decreation. But then they were shut out from the garden so they can't eat from the tree of life and live forever. Now... Chapter 22, verse 2. Through the middle of the, there's a, a river that rose through the, flows through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, this tree appears to be on both sides of the riverbank, and it's got so much fruit that it can heal the nations with its leaves. Bearing fruit every month. It's like a grand city with the, the city river lined with trees all the way down. And they are the tree of life. You're getting the sort of feel for this? Escalation. Secondly, renovation. How should we think about the world to come? Will the world as we know it be completely destroyed? And God start again from scratch? Or will it be the same old world but with a bit of a sort of new paint job? And all the potholes filled in on Oxford Road. <laughs> Revelation says, neither. Now there's imagery here of destruction. You know, the first earth passed away. But there's also imagery of continuity. So lots of things are destroyed, but lots of things carry on. Revelation shows some things make it into the new creation. Some things definitely don't. So in chapter 21, verse 1, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now we often say, oh, Sorry to hear your, your dog passed away. You know. This doesn't mean that. This word is used of a disease when the disease passes away. So it's a condition, a state that is temporary and then is healed. Mark 1 verse 42, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And it says, immediately the leprosy passed away. 
So it's to discontinue something, but not to die out completely and start again from scratch. It's still a new heavens and a new earth, which hints at continuity. The city's still called Jerusalem. Still a city. So what doesn't make it into the new creation? Seven things. The sea, death, grief, crying, pain, (coughs) curse, and night. Those are scattered around the chapter. Now, you're probably thinking, I quite like the idea of no more death, grief, crying, and pain, but I really do quite like the sea, you know? (laughs) Beach holidays. And what about, no, I mean, if we don't have the night, aren't we all going to go stir crazy? How are you going to get any sleep? Will it be like living in Alaska? (laughs) Now remember again, this is apocalyptic language. It's unveiling of something underneath. What does he mean by sea? The sea was no more. In the ancient world, the sea represents horror, chaos, danger. The sea is uncontrollable. It churns and kind of boils around. It can rise up unexpectedly and destroy coastal towns. It can swamp even a great ship. Take it down. It's a place of chaos and destruction. So in a world where everything is obedient to God and ordered, the sea has no place. Now, I don't think we should take this literally and assume that there will be no large bodies of salt water in the world to come. He's talking about a deeper reality. Same with night. In the Bible, and in a lot of real life, night is the time when evil reigns. People do their most wicked deeds at night, often. In the pre-electricity world, night is the time when you're most vulnerable to danger and attack. And I'm sure some of us have experienced night terrors. You ever had that? Night terrors, dreams that, they're not just reserved for children. I had night terrors in my early 20s. I had to go and sleep in my parents' room. Depression comes at night, doesn't it? You know that, some of you? The phenomenon of SAD, seasonally affected disorder, I think it stands for. It's real, it's really real, especially in Manchester. Suicide rates go up in countries where there's not much daylight. The night is too long. So saying that there's no night is is a symbolic way of talking about the end of all those things. You're tracking with me. Now, of course, we would be glad to see the end of grief Death, pain and crying, and those things that cause them, like relationship breakdown and conflict and ill health. So that's what won't make it into the new creation. What's left? Just look with me at chapter 21, verse 24 again. This is uh, the city. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations. Now that's very interesting. One translation even even renders this. They will bring into it the grandeur and the wealth of the nations. This means that good cultural creation, stuff that humans have done, makes it through into the new creation. But it's purified of all sin and dross. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false. So nothing from the old order, which has value in the sight of God, is barred from entry in the new creation. 
The new creation. Heaven is not a world-denying nirvana, but an affirmation of the goodness of what God has made. The best of what we've known and made and loved will be there, redeemed from all imperfection. Nothing is excluded except what's obscene and false and alien to God. It is renovation, making something new. Now, I'm going to give you a really domestic example of this. You have to forgive me. Um, Our house. Our house was built in 1910. It was a good period for for English building. Uh, It was Edwardian. And there are some beautiful Edwardian buildings in this city. So our house had these lovely Edwardian features. This gorgeous stained glass, leaded windows up the top. And over the next 100 years, it steadily declined particularly because of some cowboy builders in the 70s who did some atrocities to our house. And then it fell into the hands of students in the mid-90s, and they lived there for 16 years and did what students do. Bless you. (laughs) And then in 2010, we bought it, and Melissa set to work. (laughs) Old, rubbish workmanship was torn out and skipped. Walls were replastered and painted with imaginative colours. Some walls were taken down so that light could come into the darkness. Bringing down the walls opened the space for community so the people of God could come in en masse. A horrific 1970s concrete hearth was broken up and a board pulled away from the wall and we found an early fireplace brick. Lovely. Uncovered it, cleaned it, used it again. Some things were restored, some were replaced. All that was beautiful was kept, especially those stained glass windows. So in one sense, two Brixton Avenue, at least downstairs, is a new house. In another sense, it has deep continuity with what meant before, renovation. Thirdly, finally, consummation. And we noticed early on that the new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride. And this angel, who's a kind of tour guide, in verse 9, he, says, he goes further. He says, um, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, the, the Lamb is Jesus. So the city is the bride of Jesus. Okay? Still weird. And when you look at this description of the city that uh, Tim and Jessica read, three things are swirling around in this imagery. The, firstly, the first thing is people. There's imagery here that really suggests the people of God. It has 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. And it has 12 foundations with the names of the 12 apostles on. Those are all the people of God. The 12 precious stones that are listed there, funny list of stones that Tim read out, those appear to be the 12 stones that were on the high priest's breastplate when he went into the presence of God, like he was carrying in the people with him, symbolically, a stone, a precious stone for each tribe. These are the stones that are used in this city. The people of God. This city suggests the people of God. But it also suggests the presence of God. Chapter 21, verse 11. Having, the city is having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, what's all this about jasper? It's a very unusual word. It's not a stone that crops up much in the Bible. But jasper is especially associated with the presence of God. And in 
Verse 22 and 23, we read, the city doesn't even need any lamps because God's glory lights it up. So in other words, this city is full of the presence of God. It is radiant. It is lit up by God's presence. It's it's, uh, reminiscent of the people of God and the presence of God, but also it's a place. It's still called Jerusalem. It comes down from heaven to earth. The nations stream into it. The kings bring stuff into it, fulfilling the prophecies. It's connected with God's work through his people on earth. So what is it? Is it the people? Is it the presence of God? Or is it a place? All three. It's all of them. And the bride language suggests a marriage. We, use, we normally use the word consummation to talk about marriage. Marriage being consummated in its most intimate moment. A union that brings a consummation. The people of God, it says, are the bride of the Lamb. The book of Ephesians, talking about husbands and wives, says that husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? He gave himself up for her so that he might make her pure and cleanse her and present her to himself in splendor. And then the writer Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is a picture of what God will do in the future. What does it mean? In his own imaginative way, the writer of Revelation is showing that we will be united with Jesus Christ. And the best human analogy that he can think of is marriage. A relationship of union, of deep intimacy, total commitment, of love, tenderness and joy. That's what we've got to look forward to. So, three things come across in this teaching about the new creation. Escalation, renovation, and consummation. I hope you've just got a glimpse of how the whole story of the Bible gets resolved here. So, what does this mean on Monday morning? What does it mean on Wednesday night? What does it mean Saturday afternoon? What does it mean when you're changing a nappy? Cooking a meal, being shouted at by a client, deciding where to go on holiday, going to work. How does this teaching relate to our lives? How does our story fit into this story? What's the real world cash value? Here's the answer. We Christians, those of you who are Christians here, should start living the life of the new creation now. We start living the life of the new creation now. And the reason we do that is that the new creation has already started. What, you say? Can't be. Still living in the old order. Last time I looked, there was crying, pain, death, destruction, disease. Yes, we do still live in the old order. But the new creation is both future and present now. The one who speaks, God, says, I am making All things new. The new Jerusalem seems to come down twice. Now some scholars have had a problem with this. What happened, you know? Start the gear up again and bring it down again. No. It's implying that it's already started. And it's ongoing. He is making all things new. And this word word that's used that God is dwelling with his people. is the word that's used throughout the Bible for God living with his people. Whether it's in the wilderness or Jesus. So how does God make his dwelling with us now. How does the new creation start now? It starts in the church. God's people. Because that is the place where lives are made new. Where men and women are born again 
and live in the presence of God as the people of God. Which means that the church gathered is a place where the new creation is already beginning. The Apostle Paul says of individuals, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Talking about our inner lives. And that's now true of the whole cosmos, it will be. The new creation has already begun here. We're not on hold. You know when you phone through to these companies now, you go through all the switch, uh, press two for so-and-so, you press that. Press three for council tax, okay. Press four, and then you get there and it's like, you are 300th in the queue. Okay, you know, you're sitting there, you go to sleep. Finally a human being speaks and you're shocked. We're not on hold, waiting for the new creation sometime in the future. We're in it now, starting now, but waiting for the full fulfillment. So what does it mean on Monday morning? Three things. It is, the new creation is a holy city. No unclean thing can enter in. There's no pornography in the new creation. There is no envy in the new creation. There's no bitterness. There's no greed. There's no self-promotion. There's no gossip or slander. There's no arrogance and pride. How could there be in that place? So if you're a Christian, do your utmost to get rid of those things now. They have no place in the life of the new creation, so they have no place in your life. What is there? Beauty, kindness, joy, thankfulness. People living life to the full, doing their work to the glory of God. Whatever their work is, the grandeur and the wealth of the nations goes in. So the best of all that you do in your work is valued by God. Do it for his glory. It's a holy city. It's also the people of God. Now, how does believing in the new creation work out at the local level? It means that the local church, as small and apparently insignificant and weak and flawed as it is, the local church is an outpost of the new creation. That means that we belong to each other in the church. We sometimes think of church a bit like a society or a club. You know, I'll fit it in with my other activities. People even talk about doing church. You hear Christians say, oh, this is how we do church. It's completely wrong. You don't do church. You be church. You are church. It's not an activity. It's an identity. It's part of who you are. If you're a Christian, you have to be part of the local church. And we belong to each other. Cash value. You can speak God's word into each other's lives. And speak God's word to me. If you see me sinning or failing or being impatient or, or discouraged and down needing encouragement, speak God's word to me. I belong to you. And I can do the same for you. We belong to each other. We're part of the people of God. We're going to spend a long time together, guys. <laughs> that means if my brother or sister needs something, my resources are at their disposal, whatever it is. My stuff, my time, my emotional energy. We belong to each other. And if you're part of the people of God, if you're, if you're part of that unity, then you show up. We went to a wedding yesterday in Shropshire. Uh, one of our members, Heidi, got married. And when we got home, our son had had an email from his rugby coach uh, saying, I know you weren't at training because you had to go to a wedding, but couldn't you have gone to the wedding after training? <laughs> 
you are an important part of the team. I thought it was very interesting that a, a teacher who's busy took the time to email a 13-year-old to say, you're important, you're part of this team. Think about whether you could make it a priority. Now, in that instance, he couldn't have gone. But the point was, you belong to the team. The under-13B team. Now then, how important is the under-13B team compared to the Church of Jesus Christ? Are you tracking with me? If we understand that the local church is the first taste of the new creation and that we belong together as God's people, we belong to each other as the people of God on mission, then we must prioritise it. It's so much more important than the rugby team. So if a leader or a fellow member graciously challenges you on your priorities, accept it in good grace. Next week, Maxim did a wonderful job actually of um, introducing, you know, well, when we're moving, and it's, for those of you who knew, this is a big story. We've been trying to move for two years. We're moving our Sunday meeting to a new venue. It's really important, you know, and going to a new venue has all sorts of complications. We're trying to figure out how we do things and what sort of cups are we going to have and, you know, will the projector be big enough to project onto that wall and where are we going to put these seats and all that stuff. It's one of the biggest weekends in our church history. So will you make every effort to be there? What could be more important? You're part of the family. It's a holy city. It's the people of God, the new creation. And it's all about him. There was a t-shirt that was produced a few years ago in America. The front of it said, it's not about you. And the back said, it's about him, capital H. It's about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God who made us in the first place and remakes us and brings us back to himself. A friend, uh, Jez, here said to me recently, the Puritan Christians of the 16th and 17th centuries had a different view of heaven to us. We modern people are very interested in the benefits. You know, I like the idea of no sickness, no death, no crying, the end of pain, the fullness of life, and a long rest. I like it. But to the Puritans, those things are the fringe benefits. What they get really excited about is that they get to see Jesus. Behold, John says, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's what get really lights his fire. He gets excited about it. He, it's all about him, and we will be with him. We will meet him in the air. And then we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Does that vision captivate your heart? Your mind, your affections. Imagine the final day. The new creation has finally come in all its fullness and a multitude of no one can number is gathered around the throne of God and at the centre of the throne is the Lion of Judah who looks like a lamb that has been slain bearing the marks of slaughter. Books are opened. Deeds are announced. And the Lamb's book of life is opened. And you wait. And you hear your name called. And you walk down through the crowds to the foot of the throne. And there, a nail-pierced hand reaches out to your hand. 
and says, now you can look me in the face. And then you hear his voice saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your eternal rest. Is that worth living for? Let's pray.